The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the geopolitical implications after Russian kamikaze drones and missiles strike Kyiv. We discuss the latest reports that thousands of Russian troops are moving to Belarus. And our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, talks about his recent visit to the frontline city of Bakhmut in Donetsk. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 17th of October, day 236. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, who's travelling back from a reporting stint in Ukraine. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Good afternoon, folks. I think what we should concentrate on first is the attack that we saw in Kyiv this morning in rush hour. It wasn't quite as devastating as last Monday's kind of rush hour attack across Ukrainian cities. But what we did witness was the first strike used by Russia using these Iranian-made Shahed or Shahid 136 drones, essentially kamikaze drones, loitering munitions. And they essentially, they fly above targets and then they crash into the targets and let off a detonation of about 50 kilos worth of worth of kind of explosives and we heard reports that there were so the reports of air raid sirens above kiev the actual ukrainian capital not just the kiev region this morning there have been reports from the scene of say between five and ten blasts as these drones apparently kind of evaded the city's air defenses and then smashed into what we believe are several targets across the city. It's believed the main target was near the central station in the Ukrainian capital. Uh, it seemingly was a energy Im- piece of energy infrastructure, so either some heating or uh, power kind of facility linked to the Ukrainian capital that was being targeted. And say the, the basics we, we know... Um, We've seen videos, um, pictures of Ukrainian servicemen and police officers attempting to shoot these drones as they fly, flew through the air above the city, uh, down with uh, AK-47s. Um, the authorities in Kyiv have told us that three people have been confirmed dead, including a woman who was six months pregnant. We've seen damaged residential buildings from where these strikes landed. But so what it is, is a continuation of kind of these long range attacks that Russia is now seeming to take out on civilian infrastructure in the wake of the bombing of Kirsch Bridge, uh, what Vladimir Putin basically his retaliation that he's confirmed. So Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, he posted pictures of fragments of one of these drones that had either been shot down by air defense systems or had actually detonated because they're known as kamikaze or suicide drones. They're one use, single, but we'll go back into actually what what they're about later um, and it had the word Gerin 2 in Russian marked on the side and this is what officials in the west and Ukraine believe is the Russian code word for the Iranian made drones that they've acquired from Tehran Tehran 
Reports on the ground were rather chilling. We saw, like I said, people sheltering again in the city's metro systems, uh, underneath the main railway station in the centre, where which was seemingly part of the target. Um, you had people reporting hearing kind of this really eerie, like loud screeching moped sound uh, above the head before the drone flies in, uh, basically smashes and obliterates its target or makes the hit. And so we, there was a, a agency France Press, the uh, French news agency, posted these incredible photos of of uh, servicemen using AK forty seven trying to shoot these things. We actually saw a close up. It was this basically this like this triangular kite looking thing with a an engine propeller on the background. It's very kind of crude, and that but that is probably the closest we've seen one of these drones kind of in action above head on taken by a quality photographer quality camera not just mobile phone footage of these things kind of two or three hundred meters in in the air so i'll stop there for that because i believe france is going to go to some of the international reaction on this thanks joe yes um let's go to francis sternly obviously the use of these drones has huge domestic and international significance francis can you talk us through some of the reaction Certainly. Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. As you say, there has been quite considerable reaction to this, unsurprisingly. I think first it's right that we start with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who has posted on Telegram saying, All night and all morning, the enemy terrorises the civilian population. Kamikaze drones and missiles are attacking all of Ukraine. The enemy can attack our cities, but it won't be able to break us. The occupiers will get only fair punishment and condemnation of future generations, and we will get victory. This comes on the back as well of Ukraine's military saying that it's destroyed 37 of these drones since Sunday evening, or around 85% of those who are involved in the attacks. Now, we have, that hasn't been independently verified, but if that's true, it does speak to the fact that most of these drones are actually being shot down successfully, but it's the ones that get through that are causing the damage that Joe just described. Now, the international reaction has been considerable to this. Um, the Austria's foreign minister has said that, from his view, this marks an escalation in the conflict. The, U- the new United Nations rights chief has also voiced alarm at this and, uh, and, and has said... Um, Any escalation in warfare is deeply troubling to us and it's happening in Ukraine. Uh, We have received reports from our colleagues on the ground about these drone attacks. It is absolutely important that civilians are not targeted. This is very difficult in densely populated urban areas. The US Embassy in Kyiv has also criticised these drone attacks um, and, uh, and has said more desperate and reprehensible Russian attacks this morning against civilians and civilian infrastructure. We admire the strength and resilience of the Ukrainian people. We will stand with you for as long as it takes. Now, obviously, it's, um, it's significant, as I say, that there has been this international reaction. But I'm quite interested in this idea of this being escalatory, because I think that's actually something that's that's somewhat contested um, as the reaction um, has been coming in this morning, because some are saying that actually this 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 is really no different than the um, than the strikes that have been taking place in recent weeks on cities like Kiev. Um, and and people have argued that really it, it, the weapons have changed, but the reality of what it means for civilians on the ground hasn't. And so this idea that it's escalatory is, is as I say, up for question. Although I think perhaps a different way of thinking about this is that because these drones are considered far less accurate, more random, their attacks seem to have, uh, from the perspective of others, 
a, a, a further cruelty to them. Um, that uh, whilst in theory, if one is shelling a city, you're, you, you have deliberate targets in mind, these are supposedly slightly less accurate and thus as a consequence, as I say, are um, uh, deemed by some at least to be a more barbaric weapon. Now, if that is true, that is speaks to something that we've spoken about in the podcast recently. I know Hamish de Breton Gordon has talked about this, um, which is what he sees as the increasing likelihood of, um, of, 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 of the war becoming more barbaric, the more desperate that Putin gets. Not just talking about it in the nuclear context here, but also talking in terms of chemical weapons and weapons such as these kamikaze drones. He uh, and others believe that this is this shift is in part because of the new overall commander in Ukraine who learnt many of his sort of strategies um, in Syria. And of course, uh, regular listeners will be f- familiar with the, the influence on, of Syria um, in the direction of, of, uh, of, of and the direction that that conflict took and the sort of barbaric strategies that were adopted in order to keep Assad in power, supported by the Russians. So as I say, there's, there, there, there's some who believe that this is a logical shift that is in part coming from this senior commander. Now, if that is true, of course, it means that it, it makes it all the more urgent, arguably, that certain red lines are laid down now rather than later. I've spoken in the past about this tension between the West be appearing too reactive to what Putin is doing as opposed to proactive. So I think that that debate and the moral debate about the nature of these weapons will continue in the coming hours and no doubt the coming days as well. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, before we move on and talk about a little bit about these drones, where they're from, how they work, um, Joe, can I just come back to you? There's, there's still been lots of intense fighting across Ukraine. Um, can you talk us through that? What's been happening? Okay, so elsewhere across Ukraine, we have seen um, kind of uh, ramped up assaults on Russian positions in the Kherson region, um, with, say, fighting is said to have intensified at a kind of fierce levels. Um, so as usual, Ukraine has maintained a relatively good operational silence, meaning that it won't kind of publicise where its troops are, what they're doing, um, purely to avoid the Russians finding out and just to kind of give them some kind of operational cover on the battlefield, not to give away too much of their details about what they're doing. Um, but so Moscow over the weekend claimed its troops were holding their defensive line in the south amid what, as I just said, was fierce fighting. A Russian military spokesman said up to three battalions, including one tank battalion, were part of the Ukraine uh, counteroffensive in an area just northeast of the city of Kherson in the south. Um, and so what we have witnessed, uh, the south is that's one where one of the counteroffensives that Ukrainian uh, troops launched towards the end of summer. Um, progress there was a lot slower than um, in Kharkiv, in in the region near the Russian border, which seemed to kind of disintegrate. uh, The Russian defensive position seemed to disintegrate literally within minutes and hours. Uh, But this kind of assault in the south has been a lot more grinding and and attritional and slow-moving. But there has been some sort of progress. And the Russians are holding up uh, quite well. They're, They're basically protecting the city of Kherson, which it seemed as... It was the first regional capital they, they captured and the only regional capital they captured. So they are basically desperately trying to hold on to it as the Ukrainians edge further forward. And so <clears throat> one thing we've seen and heard reported over the weekend was the um, the suggestion that Russia has been kidnapping or forcibly deporting women, children 
and the elderly from occupied areas of Kherson. And they're basically, there was a video shown of around 100 kind of residents being transferred to Krasnodar Krai um, over the weekend. And it's, it's basically this idea that the kind of Russian-installed puppet governor and leaders in Kherson have basically been asking Moscow to start evacuating civilians because they, they they basically suspect the attack is on its is coming and so we 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 had one of these briefings with a, a western official last week late last week and they basically suggested that might something might happen within a week but it is all equally plausible that it doesn't happen in a week in terms of person um actually becoming maybe whether it falls into ukrainian hands or ukrainian forces actually um managed to kind of get onto the border of the city's kind of administrative border and actually start fighting to recapture that city. Um, and say elsewhere, and uh, Roland is going to be a much better place to cover this in more depth as he has recently uh, visited the town and, and wrote about it in the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, Ukraine um, has denied that Russia has seized the town of Bakhmut, the town in the north so the next region of eastern Ukraine has been a key Russian target um, for a long time. It was kind of it played a huge role in in uh, the battles for Severodonetsk and Lysyshansk. Um and it's been a town that the Wagner mercenary group has seen to have been tasked with capturing. And so in general, it is that around Bakhmut and in this Donetsk area. It surrounds. It's been one of the areas that Russia has actually managed to make some sort of progress. It might have been grinding, attritional, and slow, but it is actually Russia. Russian forces are moving forward. So, last week, the Britain's uh, Ministry of Defence acknowledged that Russian forces have made tactical advances towards Bakhmut. Um, so that's that's one to watch out. And as I said, Roland will be able to give you much better detail on that. Um, and then some of the other updates from over the weekend um, was the Ukraine claimed that Chechen armed forces are now controlling part of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has uh, been under kind of Russian control for the majority of the war so far. It's Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, and kind of these attacks on it um, have brought into or called into question whether uh, kind of the Russian occupation of the plant will trigger a nuclear disaster. And it's been kind of one of the big diplomatic. Uh, kind of beating sticks um, that Ukraine has used to try and get the West to to take action against Russia, and it's uh, it's one of the big kind of flashpoints that we've seen in recent weeks. Um, and then another thing that was announced today: um, the EU has announced another five hundred million euros to help reimburse its twenty seven member states that are sending weapons to Ukraine. So that takes the EU's total kind of weapons donation value. Um, paid out of the EU central coffers, so about 3.1 billion since the start of the invasion, and I, I will stop there. Thank you very much for that, Joe. Just before we bring in Roland to talk about his experiences uh, in Ukraine last week and over his previous few weeks of reporting in the country, um, Joe and Francis, can we just talk a little bit more about these drones? You've given us a very good sense of what they are, how they work. Um, can we talk about where they've come from? They're thought to have been sold to Russia by Tehran. How much can, can we confirm that? And, and what does that suggest for, um, for, for, for the international sphere that, that Iran could, could be supplying uh, the Russian military with, with, with drones? Well, I think it is significant, David. I mean, obviously, Iran at the moment are without many allies, I think it's fair to say. And uh, the 
domestic situation there with the process that we've been seeing speak to their thirst and need and eagerness for those on the global stage who will be willing to support the regime there. And so I think the fact that they are, if indeed it's true that these drones are being purchased at a rate from, uh, by Russia from, uh, from the Iranians, would, as I say, be suggestive of, a, uh, of them trying to assist Russia in the hope that Russia will then offer them assistance in due course if, as some believe, the process are only going to escalate and it's going to become uh, something more inclined towards some kind of um, revolution. So I think that's the political significance um, of it in, 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 in sort of the grand sense. But I also think there's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these are not particularly effective weapons in the sense of them being high tech. And I think there's probably another angle of this, which is that they are quite cheap to purchase from Tehran. Many other countries are not willing to sell the Russians weapons at the moment. So rather than it being something that's geopolitically calculated, it may, in fact, be more just something that's a, an economic calculation for the Russians. Thanks, Francis. Joe, I know you want to come in a little bit on this as well. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of introduce the, the technology a little bit more because it's something I wrote about it in, in the last few weeks. Because it was, it was, they, they played a part in Ukraine announced uh, of not this Monday's attack, but last Monday's attack. They played a large part. And we've heard from Ukraine every day since that they are blowing 20, 30, 40, 50 of these things out of the sky. And Zelensky uh, to, to G7 leaders basically said that these things were being launched every five, 10 minutes uh, as part of kind of targeting civilian infrastructure. Um, but what we, we do know is the Russian use of these weapons shows a, like kind of proves the fact is what Western kind of intelligence sources have been telling us and Ukraine has been telling us for the last few months is that Russia is running low on precision long-range weaponry. So these precision missiles, whether they be cruise missiles or other sort of high-tech drones that can fly once, uh, or sorry, more than once. And say, these drones, uh, they're described as kamikaze or suicide because they can literally only fly once. You you launch them up, they use a commercial GPS locator to basically track their target, and they they can hover above the target for, I believe, five hours before basically hunting it down, waiting, waiting to strike, and then they will plunge in, blowing itself up, basically, as well as the target, apparently. But say, owing... To its kind of low power engine it's made from like parts of or designed for parts of model kind of bigger model airplanes and stuff like that kind of western officials believe um it has a relatively low speed so it can go about 111 miles an hour in comparison russian cruise missiles travel about 2,000 miles per hour um we've seen them being shot down by small air defense systems but we've also seen reports of um machine guns being able to take these out um so Ukraine has boasted of the fact that it is blowing more of these things out of the sky than Russia can get through. But what the Russians do is they launch them in swarms of, say, up to 10 or 15 at a time in the hope that one of them can break through the air defences of Ukraine. And say prior to today, the closest we'd seen to the, the capital of Kiev being hit, and say, excuse my pronunciation here, was in Bilatevska, which was about 70 miles away from the capital. Um, so it does give Russia some sort of long-range capability, but let's bear in mind they are very crude. Um, they're not probably going to be a game-changer in terms of the war effort and Russia's invasion of trying to capture uh, vast swathes of Ukraine. Um, but they will cause kind of untold 
misery, uh, l- loss of life, loss of civilian infrastructure um, as they continue to fall down, uh, fall down out, or come down out of the sky after being launched by Russia. And so we're hearing reports of, say, 20 or 30 of these are being blown out of the sky every day. There's going to be, say, 50 of those launched. But Ukraine believes Russia has ordered two, just under 2,500 of these drones uh, so far. Uh, Ukraine, uh, so Iran has always denied that it has supplied weapons um, to Russia, but the more and more that we see of these uh, being shot out of the sky, we're seeing kind of pictures and military analysts are pouring over all of the uh, details and looking at it. They believe that these are the, the Iranian-made Shahad 136s. Um, and yeah, it's, as, as Francis said, it's, it's a... It's a is a big turning point in terms of the geopolitical context of the war and outside of Ukraine, but inside of Ukraine, they're unlikely to have a great effect on the war effort. And I'll stop there. And if I could just emphasise as well, as, as Joe was saying there, this idea of them being crude weapons, that Joe was describing there the, the theory of how these are meant to operate, these drones, but they are crude. And that is why there's been such concern this morning that um, whilst the they may sound like they're able to accurately target certain specific sites. It would appear that quite often they don't hit those targets. And so I think that's also something that should be emphasised when we're talking about these things, that the theory can actually be quite different in the re- with, than the reality of these weapons, hence why so many residential blocks have been, have been struck, it would appear. Although, of course, knowing Putin, that's just as likely as being his intentional target anyway. Well, thank you very much, Joe and Francis, for all of that. Uh, obviously, I'd like to welcome uh, Roland Oliphant and James Kilner, who jo- joined slightly later today. Uh, Roland, can I come to you first? I know you're at uh, the airport uh, coming back from your reporting trip to Ukraine. Um, first of all, is there anything you'd like to add to anything we've, we've, we've been talking about as you've been listening? Or shall we move straight away to your, to your experiences? Look, I, I, think, I think there is interest, just because we're talking about it right now, these drones, um, there is a big geopolitical um, kind of fallout um from that and an implication and that that is this question of, of what it does in the middle east and how close is iran getting to this war and then and then there's this question of where israel is on this um because the ukrainians have been very loudly from from the beginning of the war really saying look israel has very good air defense systems we all know about the iron dome but actually there's there's lots of other things um that israel's you know very very capable arms industry produces that the ukrainians are very keen uh, to get their hands on um, for understandable reasons. And the Israelis, since the beginning of the conflict, have frankly just been sitting on the fence um, and, and hoping this thing goes away because they also have quite a, a kind of tight relationship with Russia, which has implications for their own operations against Iranian-backed militias over Syria and so on and so forth. And it's getting to a point where, you know, they're, they're either going to have to come off the fence or, or this this kind of balancing act um is i don't know i mean i mean maybe they have to come to the fence maybe they're right maybe they can, they can get through but um but, but the appearance of these um of, of these new iranian drones but also these reports of iran is going to start sending cruise missiles to to russia um are really really going to bring that that question to the fore um, i was speaking to james rothwell our jerusalem correspondent um uh, just in the car about this, he's writing an analysis about this today, and I, um, I would strongly recommend that listeners look out for that um, because it's quite an interesting um, part of the whole piece. Um, so that's my comment on that latest development today.
Joe was talking about the fighting around Bakhmut in the last few days. You've been there recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen and what did people there tell you? Yeah, I mean, so I've mentioned Bakhmut a few times over the past, you know, a few days on on, on the podcast. So Bakhmut is a very important town in Donbass. By Donbass standards, it's quite a big city. Um, by British standards, it's more of a town. Um, I think it had about 70,000 people before the war, 72,000. Um, but it's got a railway station and hospital and all the communications you'd associate with a relatively large built-up area. So it's quite a prize if you can get it. Um, we visited last week because it is the focus of this ongoing Russian offensive. Um, and the context for that is that that big push in Donbass never really stopped. I mean, it slowed down after the fall of Severodonetsk, Donetsk, but it carried on. And, and the breakout, one of the one of the things that led to the fall of Severodonetsk was a breakout by the Wagner group through a town called Papasna. You keep on going from Papasna and you start getting towards Bakhmut. Um, and now, the past several weeks, they've been trying to push into the city. I found it, you know, heavily damaged, deserted, bombed out, grim and depressing. Um, but also, you know, quite static. And, and like static battlefields, you 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 know when a battlefield is static because the civilians understand the rules and, and where they can go and what happens. So you've still got, you know, pensioners picking their way across the ruins of the bridge in the center of town, which has been blown up. People still kind of picking their way across this, basically stepping stones made of debris um, to get over to their flats on the western bank where, where most of the fighting has happened. Um, people moving around despite a hell of a lot um, and it's quite slow relatively to what I used this when we were there because the weather was quite bad but despite you know quite active artillery fire being heard in the area um, which says says everything about that said to me this is quite a slow battle and if the Russians are making progress it's, it's very very slow and that matched to what we heard um, and then we had these funny little reports over, you know, just after we left, we got a report from the British uh, Ministry of Defence saying, what did they say? They said um, that, yeah, the Russians had suddenly, you know, got into a, uh, the, these villages to the south of town, had made progress. Um, and that interested me because that was exactly what someone had told me when we were there a few days before that. So it was either the British reporting an event that had happened previously or they were reporting a second attempt by the Russians. And then we got these reports on Russian telegram channels saying, oh, it's looking bad for the Ukrainians in Bakhmut. We've got them in a half semicircle. Oh, they're pulling out. They're retreating westwards. Um, and I thought, really? I mean, impossible because, you know, when you're on the ground, as I often say on this podcast, like you know very little, you see very little, you talk to as many people as you can, you get as much, you know, as wide a a sample of views as you can obviously but you know your, your view is limited so i thought well yeah maybe maybe something's happened maybe i wasn't aware of of more movement but then um the gray zone which is one of these telegram these russian propaganda telegram channels which is closely associated with wagner had an interview with the evgeny prigozhin the head of wagner today um in which he said um this legend this like, this legend about the ukrainians running away from Bakhmut is just that a legend and he called it stable but difficult um, for the Russians, which 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 completely matched my um, my impression in Bakhmut, um, to be fair. And that leads me actually to to one of the main things I wanted to say about 
you know, about about my impressions, which is about this fog of war thing. I mean, we we've we've been relying a lot on we we rely a lot on official statements from the Ukrainians um, because they have quite a tight information policy. We don't really rely on official statements from the Russians because the Russian Ministry of Defense is so completely. I, I mean, almost to the point of useless in its statements because it's so obsessed with not saying anything bad. So you end up relying on the Russian side from these kind of, you know, allegedly independent telegram channels, you know, which includes the Grey Zone, which includes Rebar, which includes, you know, Simon Pegov from um, from Wargonzo. Um, but they are also propagandists and they also get things wrong. Um, they are very aware that we're watching them as well. Um, so, you know, um, there is absolutely nothing... Um, that acts as a real substitute for being there on the ground, speaking to people and seeing things yourself. But the moment you leave, you know, even if you've got telephone numbers for people, even if you've got contacts, you know, those telephone numbers don't always work. You know, you might not get back there. Your your your, your contact might move somewhere else. Um, you know, the fog of war descends again, um, and and suddenly, you know, the blackness has lifted. It falls again. And it can take you hours, days, sometimes weeks to actually work out what actually happened. Um, and that is something I think everybody should bear in mind when watching this war because it's it's so rapidly reported. You know, on Twitter, on Telegram, and people get excited and they retweet things. We're all guilty of it. We've all done it at some point where we've kind of, you know, seen something and it and it maybe it maybe it confirms a belief or a hunch or a bias that we have. Um, and and one is perhaps not as cautious as one should be, um, and it ends up getting out too far. So everybody watching the war, you know, be aware. The, the basic truths do emerge, but they don't emerge immediately with lightning speed. Um, you know, so so that that is always something to to bear in mind when when watching this conflict. Thanks, Roland. You're on your way home now. Can I just ask? From the past weeks of travelling across Ukraine, of interviewing people, of seeing these cities and towns for yourself, um, what are, are there? Are there any interviews or moments or sites that really stand out in your memory? I mean, back to one of them, because I, I I've known that city so long. Um, I mean, I've been travelling to Donbass since 2014. Bakhmut was never really a place that saw action before. Um, it was the Bakhmut was always a place of safety. So in 2014, at the in the last big battle of the 2014 war was a battle called Debaltseva, uh, which is a railway junction, which is you know 30 or 40 miles. Um, don't quote me on the distance. Southeast along a highway from uh, Bakhmut. And the Russians inflicted a, a big battle of encirclement. Basically, the Russians won. The Ukrainians had to pull out. And because of the threat of the destruction of the entire Ukrainian army there, Petro Poroshenko was forced to sign this this very bad peace called the Minsk Peace Agreement. Um, uh, it was basically a, a peace deal dictated by Vladimir Putin. Um, and I'll, I'll park the kind of discussion of the implications of that, how it is that war. But, but I remember being in Bakhmut then and, and watching these guys come up the road. Um, I, I suppose the comparison would be a little bit like... A little bit like sitting on the south of England in kind of you know 1940, watching the lads come back from from Dunkirk, and the you know the stunned expressions, the the sense of disappointment, a, real, a kind of unpleasant feeling in the air actually that night. I remember, um, and then again, I found myself there in May, and it was Severodonetsk this time, um, and Bakhmut was once again. 
the place of safety. Um, and it was, again, a terrible feeling of deja vu, you know, knowing that this circle was closing up that road um, and people running forth and back and forth. I found myself in the same hospital I'd been in 2014, um, looking at, you know, much worse kind of carnage. And then now, that city which I knew so well and always thought of as a kind of safest place has become the battlefield. Um, and there's a way that the war it has an inevitability you know it can show up anywhere and once you once you've seen that i mean i thought the war wouldn't come to kiev right at the beginning and then it did i thought it wouldn't come to kharkiv and it did you know war has a way of intruding into any space and then you find yourself in any space you know you could be walking around your hometown um you know like back in england or something and you you can see what would happen and where it would happen and and how people would vanish and and which buildings would be destroyed because they're targets and 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 who would be left behind because it's always the most vulnerable, the poor, the elderly, who end up left. And and the bridge in Bakhmut was quite it's quite something. It's an absolute wreck. And you have these bedraggled kind of old grannies, you know, and 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 a beggar who may or may not have been drunk and kind of, you know, still going back and forth over to that eastern bank. And in that eastern bank, you know, there's no electricity, there's no water. That's where the fight is. But they're carrying on. That's one thing that sticks with me off the top of my head. Maybe that's because we were talking about Bakhmut and, and it's in my head. I'm sure there are other things that will that will come to me if you ask me later. I'll, uh, I'll um, come up with another image in a moment. Well, thanks, Roland. Yeah, maybe maybe for your final thought, think of that. Um, just before we go to James, um, are there any other questions to Roland while he's while he's still travelling back? I have one, if that's all right, uh, Roland. I'm just um, just interested to gain a, a general perspective of obviously you've been there for several weeks. And was there any anything? What was your biggest takeaway from from what you've seen? Perhaps that was different than what you anticipated than from when you went there. I think the thing that has I've noticed two things, two, two, two trends. Um, I'm not sure anything strictly surprised me, but two things that stand out is, um, one, I have a sense of permanence about this war, um, which is a horrible thing to say, but it, it just, the way the country has adapted to it and it has become, well, it's nothing normal. There's nothing normal about wartime. Um, but everybody's found a routine. Everybody's, cracking on with life as best they can uh, and even you know the way the war is fought kind of points towards a a state of being that, it, that is, is well beyond kind of accepting that this you know okay it wasn't going to last three days and then okay it's not going to be over in a week it's not going to be over in a month um, I come away with a feeling or a depressing feeling of kind of, I don't know when this is over. It's certainly not over by Christmas and, and will it be over by spring? I just, God, I don't know. And, um, the other thing I've talked a lot about, you know, scale of destruction and actually this is, this has really got to me is, 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 is the, the way it is the most marginalized in society who end up, really suffering which which is inevitable i've talked about it a lot i won't i won't hop on about it but look this might seem trite but you know this is this is how you you know everybody has their way of interpreting things there is an old doctor who episode um you know with john pertwee or someone and he lands on a planet um 
and it's clearly a battlefield, but I'm not sure what. Now I'm a bit confused because they come across like a laser gun, and then there's like a First World War landmine, and then there's a crossbow, and then Doctor Who says, "Aha, this is a war of attrition that has been going on for hundreds or thousands of years." Because in wars of attrition, you end up with more and more improvisation, and technology kind of goes backwards because both sides are running out of uh, of stuff. And that was something I thought. I used to think about that about the old 2014 war. Sorry, the, the the war that was happening for eight years in the east. Because you'd get down there, and it was it kind of been forgotten, and people were improvising funny little things. You know, the, the grenades dropped from drones. That was going on um, in the last couple of years of that confrontation on the contact line in Donbass, and that was what Ukrainian soldiers would tell you about if you went there in kind of 2019, 2020. They talk about Russians putting grenades on drones. That's not new. Um, all these little improvisations kind of like, I remember seeing a soldier who had, do you know those little square batteries, um, kind of oblong ones um, that, you know, I don't know where you'd use them, you know, ordinary household battery. And he'd rigged up um, a few receptors for those attached to wires and he'd put it on a plank and he put it in his trench and he called it his piano. And it turned out these were wired to IEDs out in no man's land. Um, and then I saw like a trench that had been built with um, refrigerators. So that there was a ruined town and, and all the civilians had gone. This was down near Mariupol on the old contact line. And the soldiers had realized refrigerators basically make good sandbags if you run out. So there was literally a dugout built out of refrigerators filled with earth. And then they couldn't find a refrigerator and used a bathtub. Um, so all this kind of weird backwardsness, that's been reversed. That's what I'm building up to. Um, now you see a steady escalation of technologies and of violence. Um, and the most visible thing is the size of the craters as you're driving around. So I, I've noticed, you know, really big holes in the road. You never really know what's caused them. But, I mean, you know, we are not talking 152 millimeter, you know, rounds or, or, or grad rounds. I mean, kind of craters so big I could easily get out the car, go and stand in it and, you know, I'm, I'm six foot two. Right? My my head would not be level with the surface. Um, now, what are they? Well, some of them are cruise missiles. There's one in Shevchenko Park in Kiev in the children's playground. That was one of those S300s. Um, others, well, I was speaking to um, the Ukrainian general in charge of the defense of Kharkiv, and he was telling me about these kamikaze drones which appeared there about a month ago. And he said he was describing one of them. He said it just missed this tank. It did put the tank out of service, but it just missed it, landed in front of it. And he said, and it made a crater as deep as you could stand up in. Um, so an incredible, at the moment, there is an incredible proliferation of of technology um, and violence of, of, you know, sophistication um, in killing. So, like, you know, it, it, it's kind of the other kind of escalation. Um, and I only see the destruction... I mean, getting more intense as it goes on. Well, thank you very much, Roland, for joining us. Do stay listening because we, of course, would like to hear your, your final thoughts. Um, James Kilner, our foreign correspondent, can we go to you? There's been quite a lot of um, interesting stories coming out of Russia and in Central Asia. Uh, Putin went on a trip to Astana for a summit with Central Asian leaders on Friday. Can you tell us what happened and how did it go for the Russian leader? Um, yeah, sure. Afternoon. Um, right. So I was on the Moscow desk again, um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and today as well. 
Um, Putin turned up in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, on Thursday. This was a summit um, with Central Asian leaders that appears to have been organised on the request uh, at the request of the Kremlin. Putin is has very few options about where he's able to travel at the moment, and Central Asia, former Soviet Central Asia, is one of the few places he can get to uh, relatively easy, easily and relatively safely. I think actually this was his second major trip to Cent- Central Asia since the start of the war. Um, the only other place he's been to is Tehran. So he organised this trip to Kazakhstan, or the Kremlin organised it, and it was based around the Central Asian leaders uh, who have become very wary of Russia and Putin since the start of the war. They, you know, they're quite rightly wondering what's going on, why uh, Putin's done what he's done, and they've, they've watched the collapse of the Russian authority, um, etc., which has undermined Russia's place in the post-Soviet world entirely. And on the sidelines of, uh, of that meeting with the Central Asian leaders, uh, Putin also met Erdogan, the Turkish leader, and some of the Middle Eastern leaders. The meeting of Erdogan was significant. Erdogan is a very important player in this whole war. He's become a bit of a go-between between Russia and the West. He helped to organise a grain deal, for example, UN-Turkey organised grain deal in July, which allowed Ukraine to export grain to Africa and the Middle East. And he hasn't come out and directly criticised Russia's war. There's still direct air links with, uh, between Mo- Moscow and, and uh, Istanbul. Thousands of Russians have fled to Istanbul, etc., etc. So this is someone that Putin can talk to and get his points across, and then Erdogan can relay into the West, etc. Also, Putin... Uh, has designs to turn Turkey into a major gas hub. This is important because he's turned, he's effectively turned the gas off to Europe. He, Russia used to uh, provide Europe with 40% of its gas. It, that's dropped off remarkably. So Russia's now got all this spare gas, which he needs to send somewhere. He wants to develop Turkey into a major gas hub. Erdogan's happy to do that, etc. The gas might filter back to Europe through Turkey. That's That's part of the plan there. So that was one part of Putin's trip to Central Asia, to Astana. The second bit was this roundtable talk with the five Central Asian leaders. It was a terribly glum affair. They all looked completely irritated and and downbeat. Um, And the context here is really important. So when Putin goes to Central Asia, normally he is like the, the visiting emperor, the visiting king. The Central Asian states are hugely reliant on Russia as an economic driver as a, as a, and as a political ally um, to help to help their own narratives, to help their own economies. Uh, something like 40% of the Kyrgyz economy and, and 40% of the Tajik con- economy is reliant on remittances sent back by migrant workers uh, in Russia. And as we saw in January... Uh, a near revolution in January in Kazakhstan was was stamped out with the help of of Russian paratroopers. So it's it's a huge about turn to see Putin sort of turn up in Central Asia looking support, sort of sort of trying to reach out to Central Asian leaders. Normally he's the arrogant uh, emperor who garbles their names, speaks down to them, this sort of thing. And here he was asking for a roundtable, sitting down, listening to them. 
And during this uh, summit, we we then saw um, Rachmon, President Rachmon of Tajikistan, give a seven-minute monologue to Putin, who has to sit there listening to it, looking completely irritated that he's been spoken to like this by the Tajik leader, who, in his eyes, is is really just a sort of peasant from from agricultural peasant from from rural Tajikistan. During this monologue, um, it's 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 not a monologue against the war, which has has been misinterpreted a bit as on Twitter and, and elsewhere. It's a monologue against Russian arrogance, and during his 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 off off piece speech to to Putin, he says, you know, we you know we we we, we may not have great uh, massive economy, we may, we may not have a population of 150 million people, 120 million people. We, we may not have an army your size, but we have culture, we have values, et cetera, et cetera. We, we want Russia to take us more seriously. We want you to stop sending deputy menaces to, to, uh, to our conferences. We want, we want your businessmen to stop uh, only caring about oil and gas. We want, we want you to take us seriously. Um, and all the while, Peter had to sit there and, and take it. And it was just utterly remarkable because there was no way that MME Rachmon the Tajik president would would talk to Putin like this prior to his, uh, you know, war in Ukraine and, and the undermining of his authority. It was a real piece of Central Asia and Russian uh, history in the making. It really captured the moment and the atmosphere of this uh, of of Russia Central Asia relations. And Putin also had a 30 minute sort of question and answer session with some Russian journalists. Uh, there are a couple of things I know you wanted to to highlight from that. Uh, what are the most important things for for us to know about? So really quickly the the important thing is uh, mobilization in Russia has been a huge story over the last 3 weeks since since he called it first mobilization since 1941. Um, he specifically said that they, this was on Friday, they had mobilized 220,000 men into the Russian armies in, you know, in, in that time period. And that he was aiming to, to pull in another 80,000 to get to his 300,000 uh, target. And that, that mobilize, mobilization would last only another two weeks. Uh, today, we've heard only a couple of hours ago that the mobilization in Moscow has already been stopped. Moscow is a very important um, optic um for for Putin he, he he needs to keep Moscovites more or less inside. So they seem to have stopped their mobilization early. Um uh, there was that. And the second major point which came out of that press conference for me was Putin talking about the attack on the Crimea bridge ten days ago. The bridge that links Crimea to the Russian mainland really annoyed him. It's his personal uh pet project, etc. He now the FSB has been putting out and uh, theories and and the Ukrainians have half admitted that it was a Ukrainian special forces operation. Now Putin is saying that the explosives, which were probably uh, on a truck or maybe on a boat, um, were sent from Odessa on a grain shipment, one of the humanitarian grain shipments. And he said, and this is a threat, the first time I've heard it. He said, "If this turns out to be true, we're going to we, the the existence of these grain corridors, humanitarian grain corridors, will come into question. Now, these grain corridors are very important for uh, keeping 
poor, poorer places, more vulnerable places in Africa and the Middle East from tipping into starvation and also keeping inflation on global food supplies in check, more or less. So Putin's threat um, to potentially close these down because he's linking, he's now made the link between the grain corridors and the bomb on the Crimea Bridge is to be taken very seriously. Thanks, James. And and finally, you you mentioned that you were on, uh, you've been working pretty much the last three days um, on on the war and on the Moscow desk. Um, we've seen lots of reports of Russian buildup of troops in Belarus. Could you talk us through what what we think is happening? The first Russian soldiers turned up in um, in, in in Belarus for the first time since March uh, on Friday evening. Now, video showed what appeared to be mobilised men. These are not professional regular soldiers. Buried in age, they looked relatively unshaven. Uh, they didn't have any heavy weapons with them. They didn't have any tanks. Didn't have any personnel carriers, etc. But they have turned up in 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 Belarusia. Um, they haven't been deployed on the on the border. They've turned up in various military bases around the country. And at the same time, the Belarusians have said that they are also putting their army of fifty thousand men on alert. You have fifty thousand uh, Belarusian soldiers. They say that 9,000 Russian soldiers are going to turn up in, in in Belarus over the next week or so. And Belarus has potential to mobilize another 250,000 soldiers um, if, if needed. Some analysts, and we have to take this with extreme caution because, um, uh, you know, this is second guessing, say they might be massing for another potential assault on Kiev. Got to be extremely, extremely careful with that. I can't stress that enough. The Belarusians said, no, no, the, 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 the troop gathering in the troop deployment in Belarus is purely a defensive measure. And they claim that they are feeling threatened from Ukraine, who they say may may invade. This is definitely one of the big stories to watch. It comes at a time, as, as you've already discussed, when Kiev is under heavier attacks than it has been since March. And we know that some countries have closed their embassies, such as Serbia, China has also told its citizens to leave Kiev. There's a, definitely an increased security risk around Kiev, obviously, missiles and drone attacks. And there's soldiers massing again around, maybe not exactly on the border, but around the Belarusian Ukrainian border, which is only 140 miles north of Kiev and was a start line for the, uh, for the initial invasion in, on February 24th. We have to wait and see, like, like all these things, what happens next. But uh, things are getting more spicy over there. And Lukashenko and Belarus, which has avoided being dragged into a ground war, they have, he has allowed Russian air force to fire missiles at Ukraine from Belarusian airspace and allowed, obviously, Russian forces to gather in Belarus before evading Ukraine. They may get dragged into the war proper. Let's see. Well, thank you, James, for all of those reports. Um, anything, uh, Francis uh, uh, and Roland, anything to add to that uh, before we, I go to your final thoughts? I think there's just a couple of other updates that are worth um, uh, covering, David, if that's all right. Um, there was a story last week about um, two disgruntled shot soldiers shooting dead at least 11 other conscripts at a training camp in Belgorod in southern Russia. And we've just got a few more details on that. Um, 
this would be the worst violence in the Kremlin's chaotic three-week mobilisation. And we've seen some photographs now, allegedly, of the shootout showing numerous dead Russian soldiers lying across what appears to be a military shooting range. In another photograph, there's paramedics treating a man with a serious gunshot injury. And I just think it was, it's, it, it's worth saying because there was reports at the time that it was Ukrainian special forces who were behind this. But we now believe, or the, the, the narrative is, is that it's two Tajiks who mobilised into the army and then in their frustration at, uh, or, or protest about being uh, mobilised, uh, then opened fire on the recruits. So I think if that is indicative, and I'm not saying it is, but if that is indicative about how many are feeling uh, a bit at the prospect of being mobilised to fight in Ukraine, then of course it is significant. Um, the other story that I just wanted to touch on is, just so we don't lose some of the um, human side of this war that um, Roland was describing so eloquently earlier, um, Child poverty, up to as many as four million children have been thrown into poverty across Eastern Europe and Central Asia due to Russia's war on Ukraine. That's according to the UN's Children's Agency. And I read a quote from them. Children are bearing the heaviest burden of the economic crisis caused by the war in Ukraine. The conflict and rising inflation have driven an additional four million children across Eastern Europe and Central Asia into poverty, a 19% increase since 2021. Now, I've talked a lot in the past about, of course, the consequences for children in Ukraine itself, but I just wanted to draw attention to that story about the way in which this war is having global ramifications, not only for the next generation in Ukraine, but the next generation all across Europe. Thank you very much, Francis, Roland, James and Joe. It's been um, fascinating hearing all of your, your thoughts and your reporting, if uh, quite sobering uh, at times. Um, so can we just go to uh, your final thought? Uh, James Kilner, can I come to you first of all? I mean, I, I really think this, this, this street movement in Belarusia is, is, is absolutely critical to watch. Um, let's see how it works out. There's a lot of soldiers milling around there. Let's see whether Lukashenko... So, so Putin has Putin's on the back foot on the battlefields of Ukraine. He's under a lot of pressure to train, change the momentum. This means he has to take risks. He has to do stuff which may 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 have been outside of his original playbook. He's already mobilised um, Russian men. This is one of the things. What is he going to do next? Is he going to pressure Lukashenko to to get involved in the war? Analysts have said it'd be very difficult for Lukashenko to resist an order from Putin to to get involved. Um, so I think that for me is really the the main the, the 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 main thrust of what I'll be looking at for the next couple of weeks or so. Um, and then the, the, you know watching how this Russia ends its mobilisation um, is is also really important. It's been an incredible story, really really terrifying to watch in many ways. So let's see how that ends. Well, thank you very much, James, for that. Uh, Roland, would you like to go next? All right, I've got three. Um, the first thing about these Iranian drones, um, I think it's, I mean, m maybe, maybe it will turn out this is a bit of a sideshow, right? And it's not the main issue, but um, this, this question about what that means for, say, the Israelis finally coming off the fence and accepting that they can't sit this one out because there's this huge global world-defining war going on. Um, what, what we were just talking about, you know, what happens to Belarus? Is Lukashenko going to get drawn into this? 
you know this this war is terrible the danger of it was always that it would it would it would it would widen we'd get these kind of huge I don't know, World War One, World War Two style alliances, you know, the world in two blocks, Russia, China, Iran on one side, you know, the West on the other. It's worth just considering that. It it, it may be a sideshow, but this is this is important stuff. You know, um do we end up with a confrontation in the Middle East? Does it exacerbate tensions in the Middle East? Um, you know, what does North Korea end up doing? Does Belarus get joining? Where are the Chinese on this after the um you know, it's 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 the the, the Chinese Communist Party conference, um, uh, Congress, um, a really major major moment. Um, so, this is this is a time to think and to worry about the international consequences of what's happening. Um, a couple of other things. So, a little bit of feedback. I spoke to a friend in Kiev um, yesterday um, who listened to the podcast and wanted to. Uh, she had two things to point out. One was she felt we got. You know, we'd slipped up on a fact. She said we'd reported that Kiev was last hit in March, and she said no, it was hit in June before the big attacks last Monday. Um, and she also had another point, um, which I, you know, I said, look, we do try to do this. She listened to an episode um, where she felt there wasn't really a Ukrainian voice, um, and was, you know, quite quite upset about that. And I mean. So of course we 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 do I think on this podcast and generally in our reporting try to always speak um, to Ukrainians and those involved in this war because it, it's it's what our job is um, we're we're always conscious of that and the whole point of me being out here um, you know out in Ukraine is to speak to people and hear them and kind of allow that to inform our reporting because that's I mean that 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 is the job. Right, there, there, there is no point in doing this without having those those conversations. Um, so I just want to kind of, you know, reassure listeners that is always um, at the forefront of our minds when we're doing this job. Um, and the last thing you asked me, you know, the, the thing that would stick with me from this trip. I mean, I think going back, it's it's Vyacheslav Zadorenko and his mother um, in the village of Kozachalopan, right up on the Russian border. Um, who were incredibly kind um, and shared a really remarkable story about which encapsulated everything about this war, about the invasion, about occupation, about separation, um, about liberation, um, about resistance, um, but also about compromise, um, about collaboration, about everything. Um, They were, as I say, you know, incredibly kind. We we rely on Ukrainians to to share their stories, essentially, so so that we can relay what's happening in this war to our listeners and to our readers. Um, so that that really is what what I remember from this trip. I think. Well, thank you very much for that, Roland, uh, and uh, thank you to your friend for listening. And feedback and thoughts are always, including critiques, are always more than more than welcome. Um, Roland, do enjoy your your rest and your time off, um, and thank you so much for all of your time um, over the last few weeks. It's hugely appreciated by us, by me, by by all of our listeners. Um, Francis Sternley, can I come to you last then for for our very final thought? Thanks, David. Well, Roland spoke earlier about the sense of, of, of permanency that he saw in, in, in Ukraine, uh, or at least the sense in which things have remained more static and fixed as the war, the longer that the war has gone on in, the, in many places. And I just 
wanted to draw attention to another of the UN votes that took place last week. Um, listeners who've been following the podcast for, for, for many months now will recall that these votes pop up. And it's always interesting seeing which countries are moving or, or not moving in, in either direction, more towards Russia's side of the argument or more towards the Western side of the argument. Now, as I say, what's very striking about this vote that took place last week, it was on the 12th, is the, the lack of change that we've seen. So regular listeners will recall that um, countries like uh, India and Pakistan um, abstained from votes to condemn the uh, territorial invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And indeed, they have still not changed allegiance despite everything that has happened. Indeed, I think there were 35 abstentions several months ago, and indeed there were still 35 abstentions this time, with 143 in favour of condemning what the Russians have done in Ukraine. So, as I say, I just wanted to draw attention to it because I think it speaks to a sobering fact about the war, which is, to Roland's point, the sense in which whilst everything, of course, has changed, we've seen enormous shifts in the battlefield, enormous shifts in the way in which this this war is being fought and in attitudes towards Ukraine and the way that politicians are adapting at home. Nevertheless, there is also this other side to this, which is that this war is going to go on, I think, a long time. And there are many, many countries around the world that are still hedging their bets. And if we were really seeing the transformational change that many predicted, then I think we would start to be seeing that one way or the other in these UN votes. And the fact that we haven't, I think, tells its own story, albeit a sobering one. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Isabel Bouchard, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Just before you go, listeners, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like from our foreign desk here at The Telegraph. It's called How to Be a Dictator by our brilliant China correspondent, Sophia Yan, who you will have heard on Ukraine The Latest quite a few times. Here's a sneak peek. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing, and we, we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected, and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi, well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these.
Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator. Coming soon from The Telegraph.